My name is Carrie Ginger, and your host of the Vital Podcast, Know Better, Live Best. Today's guest is Dr. Dominic Diagostino. He is a tenured associate professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida Morsani College of Medicine and a research scientist at the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition. In addition to his scholarly work, Dr. Diagostino and his wife spend a considerable amount of time working on their farm in Florida with a focus on sustainable and regenerative agriculture. Listen as Dr. Diagostino teaches us about the ketogenic diet, electrolytes, intermittent fasting, and the importance of knowing where your food comes from. Know Better Live Best is dedicated to supporting food and health literacy in people of all ages. Our mission is to cut through the misinformation surrounding food, health, and nutrition because we believe that when people know better, they can make the right choices and live their best lives. We are presented by Biteable Foods. They use blockchain and Internet of Things technology to build traceable, transparent food systems because it shouldn't take an investigative journalist to find out where food comes from. Hello, I am here with Dom Diagostino. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've heard actually a lot about you from my brother. He's raved about you for a long time. You actually inspired him to lose like 70 pounds, probably more than that by now. Um, but he's he's done keto and he I'm pretty sure he talks about it every week to me. So, <laughs> so you've been a big inspiration to him, and so we're excited to have you on here. So why don't you go ahead and give a little brief background about yourself? Okay. Uh, well, I grew up farming, and I know your podcast is kind of heavily geared towards uh, agriculture. Uh, more of like a commercial farm when it, uh, we were growing uh, hay and wheat and soybeans and things like that. And so, I had the perspective of uh, different types of farms just from the network that I was in. And that was in New Jersey. And in high school, I got really interested. I wasn't a very good student, but I started getting more interested in biology and actually environmental science, ag science, things like that. And I did... Um, I started, I took a lot of agricultural and environmental science courses at my undergrad college at Rutgers, but really focused on nutrition. And partway through my nutrition degree, I uh, realized that it probably wasn't the best degree if I wanted to get into med school. So, was, so I ended up double majoring nutrition and biology and, um, and then to basically boost my credentials or my resume, I started doing research in a hospital at Robert Wood Johnston University Hospital on the neural control of autonomic regulation, how our brain controls our physiology. And uh, that led me to do a degree, not in nutrition, but into neuroscience, into uh, how our brain controls respiration. The neural control of respiration is really what I focus on. And as I went through my PhD program, I got heavily into diving and diving physiology. And that steered me into uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship and that was funded by the Office of Navy Research to understand environmental extremes that limit the Navy SEAL uh, diving operations, which is oxygen toxicity seizures. So I developed uh, unique technologies, which were like these environmental chambers that had microscopes inside them so we can look at the level of the mitochondria we could do telemetry experiments we can understand fundamentally what the problem was 
And then that led me, once I understood the problem after 10 years of doing this research, developing a mitigation strategy or countermeasure to prevent cellular, biological, and physiological effects of these extreme environments. And that just happened to be ketones and ketone, the ketogenic diet, and the state, the physiological state of ketosis. And that was back in 2007, eight, and nine. I, I kind of steered away from drugs. My main thing was, you know, focusing on drug mitigation strategies uh, for anti seizure effects mostly. And then I realized that the ketogenic diet was used for pediatric epilepsy and controlled seizures better than drugs. So I was like, wow, this presents a really unique opportunity for me to get back into nutrition which I always thought was important and very underrepresented in the academic setting uh, to bring nutrition back into my research program and specifically the ketogenic diet and various forms of ketone bodies that are produced naturally to develop sources of them that could be administered exogenously in, in supplements and then looking at, at, at nutrition as a whole and various food sources that could produce that state of ketosis. So that was 10 years ago, and ever since then, we've been studying the ketogenic diet or uh, exogenous ketone supplementation or ketogenic foods that can produce that state. Well, your background is incredibly impressive, and I was telling you earlier, it's really exciting to hear from someone in the medical field that has such an emphasis on nutrition and how it can help heal people. And so I'm really excited to pick your brain, um, especially about the ketogenic diet today. So. Sure. I think, you know, we hear about keto and ketosis, and that's really been in the forefront of um, the diet world or nutrition world. But I think there's a lot of um, misunderstandings about that. So can you just tell us first what maybe keto is? Sure. Uh, the ketogenic diet is probably the only diet that I know of that you can objectively measure with a biomarker that your body produces, and that's that's ketone bodies. Beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate are two of them where there are commercially available uh, meters or technologies that, that you can get at CVS or Walgreens or any drugstore that allow us to measure the state of ketosis in the body. And that state of ketosis is often perceived as a negative thing because if a type 1 diabetic is in a state of ketosis, that could be diabetic ketoacidosis. And that results from not managing their insulin properly. Um, and that's sort of another story, but type, type 1 diabetes is responsive to carbohydrate restriction and actually the ketogenic diet. So uh, years ago, we didn't, we never, well, Many years ago, it was the therapy, carbohydrate restriction in the ketogenic diet was therapy when we didn't have insulin. And, uh, and because it is a consequence of having type 1 diabetes, you would never think of using the ketogenic diet. But it, the long story short is that it allows the person, the patient with type 1 diabetes to use much less insulin to manage their blood glucose and prevent the excursions in blood glucose that are associated with type type one diabetes and, and the insulin you have to administer. But, uh, but ketones, physiological ketosis, therapeutic ketosis, fasting ketosis, these are all sort of natural states, uh, a natural state that the body is used to getting into, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we're sort of hardwired metabolically to enter this state 
maybe not in a protracted state of continual ketosis, but to periodically go into a state of physiological ketosis offers a lot of benefits to the body. And, uh, and we're interested in studying those benefits, mostly from a neurological perspective, but also, uh, as I had mentioned before we started, from an operational standpoint, <laughs> the military is interested in sort of the, the performance resilience that is associated with achieving this metabolic state. And that could be achieved with uh, fasting, uh, periodic fasting, but that's not really <laughs> uh, a feasible approach for a warfighter, or it could be uh, a formulated ketogenic diet where the blood marker and that defines a diet or ketone supplementation that also elevates that blood marker that I talked about beta hydroxybutyrate. So that really defines getting back to the original question that really defines a ketogenic diet is elevation of that blood biomarker. In some cases, urine biomarker, if you're measuring for that into a range that correlates with a state of ketosis that, that correlates with, from my perspective, neuroprotection, seizure control, and ultimately operational resilience. Because if you're not having a seizure, you could perform better. <laughs> Under extreme environments, we know that can cause a seizure. Um, that, you know, preventing that seizure, on top of that, the ketones seem to offer maybe a uh, cognitive or even a performance advantage in the context of those operational activities associated with the military. So that that's like the heart of what I do, but we, it has spun off into studying things like inflammation, uh, preventing muscle wasting, uh, and cancer. A lot of what we do is cancer research. About a third of what we do or more is actually inducing the state of nutritional ketosis, physiological ketosis to target the hallmarks of cancer. And that cancer has a unique metabolism and physiological ketosis targets many of the growth pathways associated with the growth and proliferation of cancer that can be targeted, believe it or not, with nutrition. And this is kind of like a new idea that's been around for a long time. And 10 years ago, no one studied this, but now there's major conferences, you know, all over the place studying cancer metabolism. So it's been amazing and most surreal to see entire fields of conventional cancer biologists like societies now doing conferences, international conferences on this topic. Well, that's really exciting. And it gives hope because when you hear cancer, it is just almost debilitating just to even, you know, think about whether it's a family member or yourself. And so it's exciting yeah. to see other research going on out there that, I mean, not as simple as food because you do have to have the control to follow that. But I mean, yeah. You'd rather do that than, you know, the loads of medicine. Obviously, medicine is still important. I'm not discounting that, of course, but... And we're not saying that medicine, yeah, doesn't no, help. No, no, it does. Different. And clinical trials need to be done. But when I got into this research, I don't. I think there was one, tra one trial on pediatric, a type of pediatric astrocytoma when I first got into this. And now there's over 30 registered clinical trials on clinicaltrials.gov. So that's a nationally registered. So it has been surreal to see that, but most of the trials, two thirds of them or more, are using the ketogenic diet as an adjuvant. So that basically means to enhance the standard of care, whether that be chemo, radiation, or immune therapy. In some cases, 
the ketogenic diet or other metabolic approaches are used as a standalone, but that's after the, the standard of care has failed. Uh, but it's, it's amazing to see that actually government-sponsored research that are registered clinical trials uh, are, have started using food as medicine. So that's, you know, that's encouraging to see that because it didn't exist 10 years ago. Well, I can imagine it would give a little power to the patient too. Like they're also doing something Absolutely. that can benefit themselves. Yeah. They have the doctors that are, you know, working for them, but they can also do things, you know, along with the treatment. And I think that's, I think it gives a little bit more power to the individual and that might give them a little more hope. And I think that's really important and exciting. Yeah. <clears throat> so when it comes. And that, that's important. Yeah. It is. And when it comes to the keto diet, but I also have heard about, um, you know, like modified Atkins and low carb. How does that differ from like the ketogenic diet? (laughs) Well, the modified Atkins diet or modified ketogenic diet is a diet that's a little more liberal version of the classical ketogenic diet. And it was developed actually by, uh, uh, clinicians at Johns Hopkins University for managing adult epilepsy because it it was found that the modified ketogenic diet, which has about double the amount of protein, instead of 10 or 12%, it's upwards of 20 to 25% protein. And the modified ketogenic diet is equally, uh, is actually the first line of choice for adults that have drug resistant or drug refractory epilepsy. So you realize now that we can formulate a ketogenic diet that's that's as efficacious as a classical ketogenic diet with like 90% fat, um, you know, using the modified ketogenic diet that has the same seizure control as, you know, the, the, the more restrictive diet. So a lot of times in kids, the classical ketogenic diet, which is like 90% fat, <laughs> like eight to 10% protein and like zero carbohydrates, that may be the first line of choice. And then there's a transition to a more modified ketogenic diet or modified Atkins. And then uh, that diet was really formulated by Eric Kossoff, who's the, the head of the, the neurology clinic at Johns Hopkins, developed this diet and then implemented it in uh, primarily in adults, but it's also used in, in, in kids or especially adolescents transitioning that um, need to stay on the diet. So when it comes to people everyday keto and people using it for general health purposes, what they're really uh, talking about is probably a modified Atkins or a modified ketogenic diet. So the definition would be that the diet's much more liberal in protein. If your protein gets too high, that can kick you out of ketosis, right? Like the original Atkins diet was like 30, 40% protein. Too much protein stimulates insulin and gluconeogenesis and your ketone levels start to fall. And we know from clinically that ketone levels need to be elevated and sustained to a certain point, uh, or I should say the, the protein needs to be lowered to a certain point to get the therapeutic benefits of the diet. Uh, but there are types of fats like coconut oil or medium chain triglyceride that can be incorporated into the ketogenic diet as a fat source that can elevate that ketone level and keep that therapeutic range. So most people who talk about following the ketogenic diet, uh, 
if they're lucky, they're following, you know, something like a modified Atkins diet, but many people are just doing low carb. So if they just eliminate sugar and starch or pasta, they call it a ketogenic diet, but it's really not ketogenic unless you have elevated urine or blood ketone levels. And then that's when you really start to get it. A lot of the benefits of the diet, not that that diet, that state of ketosis should be followed all the time. Maybe it should, if you have epilepsy, perhaps cancer or type two diabetes, it offers definite benefits in blood glucose control. Uh, but for the average everyday healthy person, you know, intermittent ketosis is probably uh, kind of a better long-term approach than continually trying to do the ketogenic diet. And that's coming from someone who follows ketogenic diet all the time, but I do that primarily for research, you know, cause I'm always testing different foods and supplements and things like that. So a lot of the people that talk about possibly following the, the keto diet is, I would assume someone who's actually following the ketogenic diet, the proper way versus someone who's like you said, probably doing low carb, they're probably getting a lot of different nutrients. I would assume like, yeah. is there a, a healthier way to follow it or can, is there different variations? Yeah. You know, I, when I first got into this, I started conversing with different families that were doing the ketogenic diet, but they didn't really know, you know, I don't want to criticize the family, but a lot of the, the parents, they just do what they're told. And what they're told is to follow a macronutrient ratio that produces a state of ketosis. And that will therapeutically manage the seizures in their, in their children. And what they were using were things like uh, heavy cream, hot dogs, and salami or pork rinds or things like that. And, uh, and in some cases, like egg yolks instead of the whites because it was more rich in fats. And this had a remarkable therapeutic effect. And I was thinking, wow, if you could do, if heavy cream and hot dogs and, and processed meat like salami and bologna are producing a therapeutic effect, imagine what kind of therapeutic effect you could get if you use whole food sources. <laughs> so, uh, so I saw this as a major problem where we could dramatically improve the health of the ketogenic diet. And I think it got a pretty bad stigma because people associate it with bacon and eggs and things like that, you know, so it kind of got a bad, but people don't think of, you know, almonds or macadamia nuts and avocados and, you know, the things that are fish, fatty fish, the things that represent the staple foods that, that I consume, you know, and that, some of these foods, especially the components of the food, like docosohexanoic acid, for example, in fatty fish, that has an anti-seizure effect, even independent of the ketogenic diet. So if you incorporate specific foods into the ketogenic diet, that can further boost therapeutic efficacy of the ketogenic diet. So we are very, we're heavily invested in designing and engineering ketogenic diets from whole food sources that can be sustainable, practical, feasible for implementation. And we also develop various forms of supplementation that can further enhance the ketogenic diet. And that's more of the military project, but it's working its way into different therapeutic applications too. But whole food sources are really the way to go. Staying away from processed, oxidized fats, processed meats and things like that, which were really the staple prescription, even from the major academic clinics we're advocating 
but now we know a little bit more about nutrition, uh, and it's not just macronutrient ratios. It's it's the actual source. You know, whole food sources are important. Well, knowledge is just it's it's so powerful. And like you said, the families you were working with, it's you know, obviously they they definitely were caring about their young child. They probably yeah. just didn't have all the knowledge they needed to go with it. Like they they want to help, and it's nice that you have this. Um, everything, your work and what you're doing is, is giving everyone the power of knowledge of how they can, you know, help their children or themselves or, you know, just whether it's to lose weight for, you know, health reasons. And it's just, it's so important that they know, you know, more and you can do better. (laughs) Yeah. And and uh, remarkably it was working. So just inducing the state of ketosis with less than optimal food was working, but it worked so much better when you can really design the diet and engineer it in a way where you're using better food sources, you know, that has been the feedback. And Absolutely. That, that's important. And that message needs to permeate the ketogenic diet clinics that are sort of still relying on this 1980s, 1970s sort of prescription of heavy cream and hot dogs and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> But we're getting there, right? Slowly but surely, that information's getting out there. So clearly there's a lot of um, benefits of being in ketosis. Is, is there any more that you haven't mentioned yet? Well, the emerging applications are things that we study. Um, and I think the, the big ones are really like uh, type 2 diabetes and obesity, which is kind of linked to type 2 diabetes in some cases, not all. Uh, and I know Verda Health is sort of an online app-based system that connects the patient with with a team of professionals, including registered dietitians, that basically coach them and guide them into entering a state of nutritional ketosis and adhering that state for managing type 2 diabetes and weaning, phasing off of the drugs, including insulin. Uh, reducing the dependence of insulin for type 2 diabetes. So it actually ends up saving the, the, uh, the insurance companies a lot. So actually insurance companies are now, uh, and I have gone to talk to different insurance companies about this as just someone that they bring in to, to talk about the future of medicine. And they are heavily starting to become invested in to, uh, into basically understanding how nutrition can impact their bottom line because they are spending so much money, especially on managing diabetes. Like uh, my student is type one diabetic and his healthcare costs went down tremendously because he uses much less insulin on a ketogenic diet. But for managing like diabetes, it's in the thousands of dollars per month. And if you could do that with nutrition, that actually is starting to stimulate some of the big insurance companies that I talked to, I won't name them, but they are interested in actually maybe subsidizing or supporting the patient with, with funds that, and those funds could be used to buy whole food sources that could help them manage their diabetes. So that, that's a very exciting, that, you know, a scenario where you have an insurance company not paying for a drug, but actually paying for specific types of uh, foods and companies who can sort of formulate prepackaged whole food ketogenic meals and actually pay the patient, uh, invest in the patient to give them money essentially to buy these foods. And that can reduce the, the cost burden from a pharmaceutical financial point of view. So that's very exciting. Like 
I thought it could happen, but and it, it hasn't fully happened yet. It's starting to happen in some circles, but I think in, in the next five to 10 years, that will be the reality. I think looking ahead, if you're an entrepreneur, I think it would be a good uh, strategy to develop whole food uh, meal plans that are in line with the published research that shows specific macronutrient ratios and specific foods that can be formulated and packaged into meals that people can purchase that can be used as medicine and pharmaceutical companies will pay into plans where essentially give the patient funds to purchase these foods. I think that's amazing news because I think sometimes people it's, you know, it's financially, it can be kind of hard, even though it is investing your health and it's totally worth it, but they just see the immediate like weekly budget. And I think that can be overwhelming for some. Yeah, I think that's really the the direction we need to go because these foods are not going to get really any cheaper if we do it the right way. If you scale up, it, it can to a certain point, but the if the farm if the big healthcare <laughs> industries, the big players, see the value of using food as medicine and the value of if you take a a type one or type two diabetes patient and you look at how much the hundreds of thousands of dollars it costs to manage that patient. And if you can wean them off of their medication by giving them food and that food is put together and formulated in ways that's not only therapeutic, that it tastes good, then that's not all patients will do it because it's difficult to implement but even if 20% of the patients do, and that's about the estimate, I'm more optimistic, I think 30 or 40%, that, that's a huge shift in the right direction. And that's, I think it's going to help some of these food companies too that are emerging on the market where they really invest the time and effort into formulating the right types of diets. And maybe they have, you know, part of their business is basically supplying it to the everyday market, but then they develop very specific macronutrient ratios and foods that can hit the medical the medical market too so that's exciting that's amazing. i know that's that's looking into that's like the projection for five to ten years down the road so if companies are listening to this you know maybe they can uh and part of my role is basically to connect sort of companies with big players in healthcare. so they can make this a reality. So the companies can basically create that future of making food as medicine. Yes. And just how much better for the health of all those individuals, if they can get on board and realize the impact of what whole foods can do for you, that, that would just be, I mean, it's just better for America. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so um, another part of, I would assume the ketogenic diet or just in general, probably with any diet, maybe um, intermittent fasting. So I'm just kind of starting to get into researching this on my own. Um, I have not tried intermittent fasting yet, but I've heard there's a lot of benefits that can happen if it's done the right way. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So intermittent fasting would be eating within a predetermined time window. For example, I haven't eaten today and it's 11.05 a.m. And I got up maybe about six o'clock today. So I'm in a semi-fasted state and the next, my first meal will probably be around two o'clock today. So I do not always intermittent fast every day. Actually, I have not done it probably in four 
four days or five days, but I will do it once or twice a week. If I do it every day, I lose too much weight. So uh, for some people that's beneficial for others, I want to, I just can't get the calories that I need to sustain my energy and weight and strength and things like that by doing it every day. So that's, that's a side effect, but it could be a beneficial side effect for some people. Uh, but it, one way to do it is to eat within an eight hour window and fast within a 16 hour window. Essentially what that would mean is you have your first meal at 12 noon and you have your last meal at 8 PM. That seems pretty easy, right? Uh, to do that. You just don't eat until lunch and then you don't, you don't snack at night in front of the TV, you know, at 10 or 11 at night and you just stop eating at, at 8 PM. So it seems very simple. And if you look at the research that a 16 hour fast and eight hour eating window, if you adhere to that and you do it over a period of time, that has remarkable therapeutic effects. Just fasting in that 16 hour window can enhance insulin sensitivity. It reduces your blood glucose levels and consequently it lowers uh, inflammatory markers that can be persistently elevated in some people. Um, so it has a whole host of benefits and it's so simple. And for people with type two diabetes, sometimes it's easier for them to adhere to intermittent fasting instead of radically changing the actual diet that they're eating. So even if you take a bad diet <laughs> and you have the person do 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating with that bad diet, you get uh, a number of health benefits and those health benefits arise from two reasons really from the fasting that therapeutic fasting of 16 hours but also because you have less of a time window to eat so without even thinking about it you inadvertently eat a little bit less so five to ten maybe twenty percent less so you are implementing a calorie restriction sort of regimen without even forcing it to do it. Like the patient may go a little bit hungry. The more you do it, you really like by the time 12 comes along, you don't get hungry. Initially, the first two weeks or three weeks, you may have hunger pangs in the beginning, but after about a month or so of doing this, you don't, you don't get hungry at all. You have more energy actually, like in the morning hours. So that's kind of like the benefit, you know, people just need to like stick with it for a couple of weeks and then it gets easier the more you do it. And then it also saves a lot of time. So you could maybe sleep in an extra 30 minutes in the morning. Like I could this morning, I had to be at work early, but because I didn't eat breakfast, right? I didn't have to prepare food, eat the food and clean up after that. So that saves me at least 30 minutes, right? So I could sleep in, sleep's a very important part of our overall health. And, uh, and the more sleep we get, sort of the better. Uh, so it allowed me to sleep in and, uh, and I save a lot of time and I feel better too on the days that I intermittent fast. I actually look forward to it. So yeah, part of the benefits of you know, intermittent fasting I was talking about previously and the ketogenic diet is the clarity in, in sort of your psychological state and your mental clarity if lack of a better term, that you have when you're in that state of ketosis. So for me, when I started doing it about 10 years ago, I had the most productive year of writing grants that I ever could and publications and things like that. So it really helped, I would say, calm my mind to the point where 
I could focus and maybe I have a little bit of uh, ADD or ADHD when my mind is kind of runs very fast and it allowed me to calm my mind to focus on a particular aspect of my research where I could pour all my time and effort into that without having mental distractions. So, and I frequently talk about, you know, that being beneficial to me in the beginning when you're implementing the ketogenic diet, you may have headaches. You may, it may, you may have brain fog actually in the beginning, but that's the part of adaptation over time. Your body becomes more metabolically flexible. So it has, if you're on a normal standard American diet, it has a big appetite for sugar and it's craving that sugar. So your brain goes through a period of glucose withdrawal of sugar withdrawal, and that creates uh, brain fog and maybe even a dysphoria where you're just, you're anxious, you're just, you don't feel good. But over time, as your brain adapts to using ketones as an energy source, that clarity starts to set in. And it's for a couple of reasons. The ketones reduce inflammation, chronic like inflammation or what we call neuroinflammation in the brain can lead to headaches, can lead to brain fog and things like that. So it clears out a lot of inflammatory molecules in the brain. Uh, it turns down sugar metabolism and turns up ketone metabolism. Ketone metabolism starts to dilate vessels in your brain through the actions of adenosine. So you actually have an increase in brain blood flow that's about 15 to 30%. You know, in patients, older patients, it could be, you know, as high as 30%. In young patients, about 10 to 15%. So that can actually boost an increase in blood flow. You eat carbohydrates, our glucose goes up, insulin gets released, and it comes down. And that leads to a mental state that goes up and down, an energy level that goes up and down. And that's attenuated, if not abolished, on the ketogenic diet. So you're, you're able to sort of focus and then maintain that focus for prolonged periods of time, which allow you to get more work done. <laughs> so for me, I approached it from a very practical perspective. I can do this and get more work done. And I was just entering a tenure track position. So I had to get a lot of work done <laughs> to actually be able to get promoted and get tenure and to maintain my position. So sort of the clock was ticking and, uh, and that clock started basically the same time I started doing research and studying the ketogenic diet. And I attribute a lot of my productivity to being in that state of ketosis, which gave me that resilience and gave me the endurance, really mental endurance to, to do what I do on a daily basis. It was less exhausting to do that. So, but it took time. I think an important thing is that it does take, the more you do it, the easier it gets. There's quite a learning curve, even for me who knew all about it. And the more you do it, the more your body adapts to it, and then the easier it gets over time. So that's a really important point for, for people to acknowledge. As they start it, it might see, feel difficult, but just letting them know that stick with it. And in many cases, maybe not all, in many cases, uh, it will get easier and you'll start getting a lot of the benefits from it. Well, it sounds like the ketogenic diet, it, it sounds like it's good for most people. Is there anyone that it may not be good for? Yeah, I would be, you know, medically speaking, when we, you know, treat patients, uh, people who have pancreatitis, you know, 
that could be a problematic because the pancreas makes uh, enzymes that break down fat, lipase enzymes, and it could put a strain on the pancreas. Uh, your liver is the site of production of ketones, and you need to have a healthy liver to basically get physiologically get into the state of ketosis. So the liver is tasked with actually oxidizing more fat and then converting some of that fat to ketones. So if you have impaired liver, if you have cirrhosis, hepatitis, things like that, I would be very cautious about the ketogenic diet. And if you've had kidney stones in the past, so the early studies show that if you follow the ketogenic diet, you're more likely to get kidney stones, but a well-formulated ketogenic diet or just simply taking a mineral supplement like potassium or magnesium uh, and subjects that do that, they don't have any higher incidence of kidney stones. So, but cautiously, you know, thinking ahead, if you've had kidney stones, you want to be very cautious. Uh, and if you want to do the ketogenic diet anyway, I would do mineral supplementation. Just make sure you stay very well hydrated because when you're in a state of ketosis, you tend to dump a lot of water. So you lose that puffiness. A lot of people feel if they're holding water, a benefit is that that goes away pretty fast. And then you, you dump a lot of water that your body holds because sugar holds carb it's a form of carbohydrates and that actually holds water. So if you have sugar in your, your tissues, um, looking back when I followed a higher carb diet, my face was always kind of chubby. I always had characteristically a big chubby face and like I can see looking at pictures, uh, my face thin out as I started following the ketogenic diet. So these are some things offhand. So liver function, pancreatic function, or kidney, kidney stones. So they're like the major things. Um, and some people just have a fat intolerance. If they eat fat, they get nauseous and they, you know, about 10% of people have that, I find. So I wouldn't, if you have that, I wouldn't try to keep trying, <laughs> you know, you might want to try it for a little bit, but if you want to get some of the benefits of the, the ketogenic diet, maybe just do low carbs, just do protein and veggies, you know, instead of high fat, you know, uh, diet, but just doing a carbohydrate restricted phasing out all the sugars and starches with just vegetables. And, and you might have to stick with low fat, lower fat meats instead of high fat meats if you have a fat intolerance. So I think when following probably any diet, it's, it's pretty crucial to follow it. Exactly. Otherwise, you're probably missing out on key nutrients that your body needs and you might, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you were not going to probably get all of the benefits that you need and you did talk about that. Um, what types of nutrients or even, um, you hear about electrolytes are maybe crucial to this diet or way of eating? Yeah, that's actually a good point. And maybe I don't think people talk about it as much as they should, but when you start a ketogenic diet, it has what we call a naturetic effect, which means you dump out a lot of sodium. The hormone insulin, when it's elevated, it'll, it, it causes our body to retain sodium. And carbohydrates and sugar increase insulin, and that's why it causes us to hold more, more uh, sodium, right? So when we, when we do intermittent fasting or if we go on a ketogenic diet, the insulin levels drop. And along with lower insulin, you tend to dump out, your body excretes a lot, of, a lot of sodium. So it's important, especially the first two to three weeks, 
to probably double or maybe even triple your sodium intake. And that could be as simple as just salting. If you have salad, if you have meals, to use a good quality salt, Himalayan sea salt or something like that, and just liberally salt your food uh, to ensure that you don't become hyponatremic because that can drop your blood pressure. <laughs> a side effect that can be beneficial for a lot of people actually is that you have low blood uh, pressure and you get something called orthostatic hypotension. If you're, sit, if you're at your desk and you stand up, you start feeling dizzy. And in older people, that can be dangerous. So you want to ensure that, uh, you know, if you're on uh, blood, blood pressure medication, you have to understand that you could probably significantly decrease that medication. If you start taking the same amount of blood pressure medication on the ketogenic diet, you're probably going to run into problems because your blood pressure will get too low. So you'll have to adjust and decrease your blood pressure medication. So again, a side effect, but a good problem to have for, for many people, right? My, I didn't have a blood pressure problem, but my blood pressure is remarkably lower on the ketogenic diet now than it, than it was, you know, before I started. So liberally salt your food and ensure that you're, you stay hydrated. You don't have to go crazy with water, but just prevent your body from being dehydrated. So that's because the ketogenic diet does two things. It can decrease your appetite. It has a satiating effect. Fat tells your brain that it's happy and you tend to not crave as much food. And that could be a good thing, but it also tends to, for reasons we don't understand, it decreases your thirst. And if you're dehydrated, that can exacerbate some of the negative effects of the ketogenic diet, like dehydration and kidney stones. So you want to make sure that, and one way is just to fill up a two liter bottle, you know, in the morning and make sure that fluid is, you know, gone by the end of the day. And you can use that to make tea. Just, just, I mean, I think people, an adult on a ketogenic diet should be getting two liters of fluid per day, like non-calorie sort of fluids, right? That's a great piece that of advice that I don't think most would think of. And, and, not, and um, I think easier ways to add to yeah. the ketogenic or intermittent fasting um, if, if they're trying that out. Because I, I did not know about the sodium part. So that... <laughs> yeah. And that's an important part too, because some people get headaches and brain fog and they feel like dizzy when they start the ketogenic diet. And that's nine times out of 10, that's because because your electrolytes are off. And if your sodium's low, you become what's called hypovolemic, like your blood volume goes down because your total fluid volume goes down because fluid follows sodium. So it's really important to get that sodium back in your body, get fluids in, and that can basically, you know, higher fluid volume wakes you up uh, just by if in the middle part of the day, I tend to run a little dehydrated, especially on days that I'm intermittent fasting. And I just, if I take some salts and some fluids, it literally feels like a, a cup of coffee. Like I'm, it, it like, it's very stimulating and my brain is, is functioning better. And electrolytes are just that, right? They are molecules that the cells use for electrical communication. They regulate various ion channels. They, uh, play a big role in cell volume, uh, things like that. So they play not only just blood pressure, but they play an important function 
and the cellular and physiological mechanism of our brain and our body. So it's really important to maintain that. And your electrolytes, if you measure them in a blood test, they, you might see some screwy things in the beginning when you start the ketogenic diet. It might be, for me, I had low magnesium. So even though I was eating nuts and high magnesium food, I had to supplement magnesium uh, a little bit to get that magnesium level back up. And I noticed the cramps that I had. I had some leg cramps when I started it, and that went away with magnesium supplementation. So my body was excreting more magnesium too. So maybe uh, magnesium is a really good... I have a, my magnesium supplement around here, but uh, it's a really good thing to take. I take it during the middle part of the day when the sort of during the course of the day, a lot of tasks may be uh, overloading on my work schedule that I didn't get done or the stress of the day and magnesium towards the end of the day seems to really take that edge off. So that has become kind of like a ritual for me to uh to cut back on caffeine but to actually supplement with magnesium in the middle part of the day and it kind of it mellows me out a little bit and calms me down and i also take it right before bed and it helps induce a state of sleep by decreasing the uh effect of excitatory neurotransmitters on your brain so so that's a benefit so take a little bit of magnesium at night maybe melatonin if you're into that and you'll fall asleep faster I was just talking to a friend. She's been having trouble sleeping. That's what she just started. The oh, magnesium yeah. before bed. Yeah, that's yeah. It's so simple. It actually really does work. Not a whole lot of sleep medications are safe or work very effectively. And magnesium is something so simple, and it works really well. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. And interesting about the sodium too. I've um, I've recently just this week have been or last week have been having headaches, and I usually do not go get headaches, so I need to pay attention to what I'm eating. Because um, it very well could be lack of sodium. Now that I'm thinking about what I've been been eating, so that helpful Especially right there. A very whole foods diet, like if you're putting it together and not thinking of using salt in that, yeah, you could run. Especially if it's low carb, yeah, you could be running low on sodium. Yeah, that's it. Pretty much speaks to me right there because I'm like, I don't. I'm drinking enough water. I couldn't. I could not figure out why. So that's um, something I'm going to look into because that might might help me with my headache problem, especially with school starting back up. I need those to go away. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about food and at Vitable, we care um, deeply about where you know our food comes from and sourcing of food. So can you talk about why it's important for you to know about where your food comes from or um, even just the whole foods in general? Yeah. I mean, I, I view, I always have felt that food and farming are like, should be viewed through the same lens and they're very intimately connected together. So, uh, you know, I had the perspective of growing up farming. I got away from it for a while, but now we're pretty much full-time farmers on top of our academic, you know, duties and stuff too. Uh, but they are intimately sort of linked together. So <laughs> there's a big difference in sourcing your food from farms that, more industrialized farms that are heavy into herbicides, pesticides, and that heavily fertilize the soil. Uh, we have the opportunity as consumers to choose uh, food from farms that are small, local, and sustainable. And if you shop around, I mean, it's not that much more expensive either. I mean, really, if you shop around. So, uh, 
I think I think we're at a, a very unique opportunity where demand, you know, the supply will be based upon demand. So consumers really need to pay attention and encourage their local supermarkets to get 20, you know, maybe it starts at five, but 20, 30% of their food from local sources. You know, they can make that change. They could go to their local Publix or Winn-Dixie or Kroger or wherever and, uh, and ask them to source things more locally. And I, you know, I mean, five, I mean, 10 years ago, I don't think, I don't shop there anymore, but like Costco and even Sam's Clubs, now that you have organic, you know, sections because the demand is there, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't there, but it's changing, you know, the demand is changing. So I think as farmers, we inherited land, not inherited, we purchased property that was intensely farmed using pesticides, herbicides, and we, you know, we had to test the soil, test the water, things like that. So we are phasing all that stuff out. We stopped it completely, but now we're in the process of, you know, having animals on the farm too, because you need an ecosystem of plants and animals. The animals build your soil <laughs> and the types of grass and the diversity that you have in animals and plants and things like that help to like build uh, a sustainable ecosystem on your farm. And I think, we need to reward uh, farmers that are doing this by buying their food. <laughs> and, uh, and the consumer is in a unique position to be able to facilitate that by looking to where you know, their food comes from and supporting that. Oh, absolutely. Um, so you can tell, especially with your farming and just your background in the medical field, um, food is a big part of your life. When we're looking at nutrition labels what are you really looking for maybe there's not a lot of labels on the food you eat because <laughs> yeah. that's probably well, the best type of food but really have, yeah <laughs> uh well i mean we we actually we want to develop we want to farm foods that we actually eat right so uh i actually like things like watermelon and, and you know foods that have higher sugar content, but we probably won't grow them but we're into growing things like uh uh Zucchini are big. We have like 10 acres of zucchini, <laughs> uh, cucumbers. Uh, but today, actually here right beside me, I have avocados. So, you know, I have too many avocados. So right now <laughs> we're thinking about they're growing so well on our property. I bring them in and I give them everybody at work because we literally have too many. So we're looking into growing a wild type of blueberry that works well in the soil, uh, avocados and, you know, cucumbers, zucchini, and then chickens. So we have chickens that we have free range. Free range is kind of a scary thing for some of our chickens because we have so many hawks and that's part of the environment, right? <laughs> Maybe the weaker chickens may be picked by the hawk, but we lose chickens. So we have to, we're creating a scenario where the chickens can be free range, but also run under things where the hawk can't come down and swoop them. So there's always a solution to a problem. You know, farming is very, it's actually, I put more thought and effort into farming than my job as like a neuroscientist, really, because there are creative solutions to, to many different problems, but, uh, but we are, 
preparing the land right now, most of my time yesterday was spent clearing a path to put a fence up for cattle. And we want to, and a lot of what it, it is is jungle and with big oak trees. So we want to keep all the big trees to protect the land. We want to be good stewards of the land, uh, but also create a scenario where we have enough light coming through to grow a diversity of grasses that will grow rapidly enough that will be essentially uh, a carbon sink <laughs> and we're really uh, and fixing a lot of the nitrogen so we're growing a diversity of things that can improve the soil health uh, without destroying the land itself so a lot of agriculture can be incredibly uh, destructive or it can be constructive <laughs> so it's really important to support farmers that don't intensively graze do like grazing where they have too many cattle on a particular area it just destroys the soil it's not good for the meat things like that and then they herd them off to feedlots and fatten them up on corn and other grains and that may make the meat taste good for some people but it's really not the, the way we want to go about farming so um, from our perspective we're not doing farming to really create a profit. Luckily, I mean, we have full-time jobs here. So the, the main thing is we're doing it as a hobby now, but we would like to be able to transition. We're putting a lot of money into it. We would like to at least break even and start making some money. And to do that is very difficult. And I know farmers now, I mean, the average farmer is like 50, 60 years old. And it's, it's really important to really stimulate young people to get back into farming and to do it the right way. And we're looking into doing that and and that means not putting you know two or three cows per acre but doing one cow per every three to five acres on our property so we don't have a lot of cows but it will they'll have you know if there's a drought if there's a problem like you know they'll have enough food and we won't have to go and buy feed things like that so they will have more than enough to eat and it also we I did the calculations and having you know one cow per three to five acres would really optimize the ecosystem in a way, especially if we get some goats and chickens and stuff in there. Uh, it really optimize the soil. We're really building the soil. The grass will go un unrestricted, so we'll be max amount of grass. The grass will be fertilized <laughs> by by the cows and by the other animals that we have. And, uh, and we have ways to, to sort of optimize that. So we'll be growing plants and grass, which suck up carbon as fast as possible, and growing cows that will, uh, from start to finish, be fed grass, you know, and not shipped off to feedlots. You know, that's really the goal, to do that. And no matter what people say, and it's some people favor more of a completely plant-based diet, I think plants and animals were meant to cohabit the same space and and we have chickens we don't eat the chickens <laughs> the chickens will go with us for throughout the duration of their life but we get the eggs from the chickens and we let them propagate and go through the garden and eat the bugs so we don't have to use pesticides and things like that so there are and it's a learning process so in some cases you can't completely phase out uh pesticides and drugs i mean we are herbicides pesticides but you know we have a problem 
with some fungal species. So that may involve putting a fungicide into it, but you can pick a plant-based fungicide that's derived essentially from a plant or the, the, the active agent is, and that agent can be put into the soil and breaks down very rapidly and does not get into the water supply. So we now have uh, many of those options and they may not work as good as some of the other uh, chemicals that are on the market, but I think it's really important to support farmers and to do farming such that where we phase out some of these persistent pesticides and herbicides that are sort of ubiquitously found in our in our drinking water now and in the aquifer, phase those out and go more towards safer things and ultimately to none at all, where we find innovative solutions from nature itself to control or mitigate some of the problems that farmers have. So... Yeah, your farm is really well thought out. It sounds amazing. Um, all well, it's a learning process. To... Oh, it yeah. absolutely is. And that's with anything. But, you know, the way you're trying to farm and um, just the nutrients and, that are going into the soil and into the food. I can't imagine how great your food tastes that you're growing. Um, I, I think there's a big difference in taste and it's better for yeah. you. Yeah, there is definitely. And even the chickens, you know, if you're not feeding chickens just uh, – <laughs> The bags of, of, of chicken meal that you get at the feedlot stores, if you let them run around and eat bugs, the the uh, the fatty acid profile of the yolk is much different. It actually looks different and tastes different when you're cooking it. So that's a big, I mean, that's a big plus there, you know. And we feed, we're very big into animals or rescue. We have two rescue dogs and we feed them a lot of the eggs too. And I think the eggs are very healthy for dogs and we grind that and incorporate that into whole food sources too. So our pets get to benefit, get some of the benefits too from, from the lifestyle and the best place for dogs to be. I mean, not everybody can let their dogs run around on a big farm, but I think that's, they're just so healthy. We lived uh, a few years ago, we lived in a much smaller property and our dogs, it's almost like you just, put them on antidepressant. They're just like running around. They're just so happy. Their tails are wagging all the time. And when they're not confined to a space where they can run around and be among the animals and everything. That's probably really interesting to see because you were at a smaller property and now clearly you're at, a, you know, your farm. Sorry, just lost my <laughs> earpiece there. But you're, you're seeing it firsthand and it's probably not yeah. as noticeable for someone that might just live in a, you know, a typical residential area. And that's, so it's not, it's, you can't just move out to a farm. Obviously, everyone can't yeah. do that, but it's fun to see for your pets. <laughs> yeah, and I think if when we live in those residential areas where we need to work, right, we're kind of disconnected from nature, and I think it's really important for uh, for people to get out into nature and to actually go be in nature at least one to two hours per week at a bare minimum, and it's very therapeutic. So for me... And for my wife or us together and our family, it's very therapeutic to be out on, you know, the farm and to be among, you know, in nature. That's a big, big part of why we wanted this lifestyle to get away from the city and everything and be good stewards of the land where we can, you know, protect the land, really. So oh. the land that we just purchased actually was supposed to be like a 45 acre or 45 house subdivision 
and there were uh, gopher tortoises on the property that prevented the development on there. So they couldn't develop on there because of certain protected species. So it ended up ended up getting it like super cheap because the developers thought they could develop on it. And then the community got together and said, hey, there's all these protected species on there. So we want to create grazing land, but also fence off and control where the gopher tortoises are so they can do their healthy, normal thing. <laughs> and we create habitat for them and protect that. So I think, uh, you know, I, it's, it's farmers should really protect the land and think about the next generation coming in because I've worked on farms where you intensively irrigate, you spray pesticides. I've ran the sprayer. I was on tractors for many, many hours growing up spraying. And I kind of, you know, just, you know, intuitively that's, it's a bad thing, but you do it anyway, because that's what farmers do. Right. So, so it's good to get away from that and to realize that there's a, there's better options. Absolutely. And that change is hard. And it's just, you know, figuring out and probably the slower change, um, just yeah. like you're figuring things out on your farm and how it works, but we yeah. know it's better for the land and it's better for everything that's growing on it. So where do you see, or what is your hope maybe for um, medicine and agriculture in the future? I mean, I know you've touched on it. Um, even just with the food as the medicine, talking with the health cares, but do you want to touch on anything else? Yeah, I think we hit like a lot of those topics, mm -hmm. but um, I think people really need to be, they have to understand again that, that food and agriculture are linked and you can't separate them and they're uniquely tied together. So they need to invest and figure out where their food is coming from and read the label, like where their beef is coming from, uh, where their vegetables are coming from. And simple things that they could do is really just uh, eat vegetables and fruits that are grown. Like if it's not grown in your area, uh, don't really eat it during that season. Like things are seasonal. So, <laughs> and what will happen is that, you know, these supermarkets will stop buying those things if you, and it's a slow process, but the more consumers modify their behavior, the more likely it is to benefit uh, the small farmers, the local farmers that I'm talking about. You know, they have the ability to do that, to request getting food uh, from small farms that are local and sustainable. Yeah, that's so, a great point. People do need to know that they can have more of a voice just to go start asking those questions. It doesn't have to, you know, cause a fuss, but just go start asking those questions and requesting it. And, and you know, if that happens more and more, it's going to be thought yeah. about. And check out the local farm market. Like every, pretty much every place now has a local farm market. Get connected with your farmer, go ask questions, talk to them, figure out what they're doing, what they're not doing. I think that's, you know, we learned from them yesterday. I spent I was on the tractor, but when our neighbor walked up to me and I had never talked to him before and I got to turn off the tractor and he was showing me all the things he's growing on his property and what he's doing and how the irrigation works and how he doesn't have to irrigate at all. So he gave me a lot of ideas and I think it's really important to be open to ideas and connect with the community around you too, I think is really important because 
farmers are can actually suffer. Farming is dangerous with all the machines and everything, but you're also pretty isolated. So, uh, but farmers do like people to figure, you know, do like the community to come out and figure out what they're doing and they like to be appreciated for the types of things that they're doing. So, uh, so I think, you know, having the community play an active role in supporting the farmers, that's like really appreciated, you know, absolutely. I have great conversations. Yeah. They're more inspired to do what they're doing. They are, they get really excited and the amount of information you find out from them, you can just hear the passion behind their work. And you do learn a ton just from asking the questions rather than how much is that they love to talk about their work and what they do. Yeah. 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 For sure. (laughs) So do you have any final thoughts or any um, new research out there that you're excited to tell us about? Well, I think uh, from the lab perspective, I'm very interested in studying emerging applications of nutritional ketosis with the understanding that changing the food that you consume changes not only your metabolic physiology, but changes the neuropharmacology of your brain. Like literally, you have your neurotransmitter systems change and And these are things that we can measure and quantify in the lab. So I think as we push forward, uh, we are beginning to investigate sort of how our brain chemistry changes in ways that could impact brain health and longevity. Uh, We published a review on headaches, for example, how the ketogenic diet can be used for headaches. And there's a clinical trial now uh, looking at ketones as a mitigation for headaches. you know, longevity, brain health, psychological health, these are all things that we never thought we'd be focusing on, but we're actively studying now. So I think that's kind of like the future of what we're doing in addition to some of the cancer work, specifically on brain cancer, because brain cancer can cause seizures and we know the ketogenic diet works for that, but it can also work in limiting the growth and proliferation of certain tumors. So we're heavily invested in that. yeah, and just working on those fronts as efficiently as possible. But uh, it's really uh, the students, the medical students, the PhD students, and the postdocs are really doing the work. So I have to really thank my lab for working tirelessly, you know, day in and day out on their projects. Well, I appreciate your work and the work of your lab because I think it's really exciting um, what's up and coming. And I've already seen so much change and I'm just excited for the future of what we're finding out about brain health and food as medicine um, and even just farming the land. I think it's all really important and it's becoming more well-known. And I like to see that knowledge continue to go out there. So how can people find you? Because they're going to want to after this podcast, even more than they already do now. (laughs) Well, I I appreciate that. the best we have like a one-stop shop i think we have a an information website called keto nutrition all one word dot org dot org and on that i have you know my podcast list but we also have resources publications consultants doctors uh clinical trials listed uh food products that we like we don't sell any food products uh I don't have ketone supplements. A lot of people think I have my own ketone supplements or foods or things like that. But what we do is we partner with different uh, food companies that we enjoy, that we like. And in some cases, those companies may give an affiliate link or things like that. So we disclose that 
any affiliate income that we do generate goes back into the research. So buying you know, some of the products on Keto Nutrition, uh, if you purchase it through the site, that can come back and support sort of things I'm talking about, things that we're doing. Uh, yeah, so we tend to grow the site. Maybe in the future, we'll have a, our own podcast where we can talk about these topics too and invite different researchers on or farmers on. Uh, so ketonutrition.org would be sort of the main. And then PubMed too. So we publish, we like to, in academia, you are held to the standard where if you are setting something, you need to publish it in peer-reviewed journals, particularly of high, high impact if possible. So you can find a lot of our work on uh, PubMed and just putting in my name, D'Agostino, DP for my initials and just searching ketogenic diet or ketones. So you can find all the latest research we're doing on, on PubMed. Sounds great. Yeah, you're definitely out there and there's a lot. Um, you can find even just searching your name, a lot of information, really interesting things going on. So again, thanks for all of your work. And it was my pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate you taking your time to come on our podcast today. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dom. We'd like to remind our audience that the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Biteable or of our staff personally. The purpose of the Biteable podcast is to encourage spirited dialogue around topics like food, nutrition, animal and human welfare, and the food system. Part of having an open and spirited dialogue is accepting that others have views that are different than ours and working to understand how their experiences have differed from our own. We encourage all listeners to do their own research on any and all topics discussed during the show. That being said, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening.